Let's bow before the Lord once again. Lord, we thank you for this time, special time that you give us to open up your word and be instructed, be transformed in our understanding. We pray that you would magnify Christ before our eyes so that we may not only look and, and marvel, but so that we may look and believe and continue to believe who is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He came here to do what is impossible for any of us to do, to forgive sin because he came to deal with our sin and to die for our sins. And so pray that you would remind these things and, and stir in us a proper response, Father. And we also pray for those who are here and are listening or those who are listening online. If they are not yours, if they have not trusted Christ as their Savior, oh Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes so that they may see. We pray for your glory. Amen. Open with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. As we go from one passage to the next, we want to keep in mind Matthew's structure and goal of these chapters. Chapters 8, chapters 9. One illustration after the next. One event, one story after the next. The goal and the purpose is to illustrate and reveal Christ's identity. That is the goal. What kind of man is this? His disciples ask in chapter 8, verse 27. Well, Jesus, Matthew goes on to teach that he is the son of God who reigns over nature. He is the son of God who reigns over the invisible world, rescuing those who are in bondage of sin. That's what our last passage was about. Well, today we see that Jesus is the son of man with the authority to forgive sin. Son of man who has authority to forgive sin. Stop and think with me for a moment. What would it be like if you had the authority to forgive the debt of anyone who came to you? Everyone wants their debts forgiven, especially today. We, we, we live in a culture and, and much of our political conversation, it revolves around debt forgiveness, right? Uh, I want my student loan to be forgiven, or I want my mortgages to be forgiven, or at least suspended for the next couple of years. I want my business loan to be forgiven. I want my, my cultural sins to be taken care of and forgiven. Just think of what it would be like if you had the power to forgive such loans, how would you prove that you had such power? Well, you would need to satisfy the demands of the lender. You simply can't go around and wiping people's debt away without right, um, acting like the borrowing never occurred. You, you can't forgive a debt personally, but only your personal debt that's been 
owned to you personally. But we cannot forgive debts that are owned to someone else. Like if you own your brother a debt, you can't come to me and say, hey, Tim, uh, forgive that debt. I'll be glad to forgive it. But listen, uh, it has no power, no binding power. Why? Because you don't owe me anything. And it's easy for me to say, brother, go, or sister, go in peace. Your sins, your debts are forgiven. Amen. I'm not even in the picture. Only, listen, a creditor who is willing to bear the debt himself has the power and authority to declare that debt forgiven. If you could truly wipe away debt, you would be in great demand today. If you could put up your money and say, your debt is forgiven, why? Because I'm going to satisfy the demands of your creditor by all means. But we don't want to do that. We can do that. The Bible tells us that we are all born into this world in a condition of debt. And it's a debt that we cannot pay off. Apostle Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. Every one of us is born into this world with the debt of Adam's sin charged to our account. God, listen, not another man, not another sinner like us, but God himself is our great creditor. And every single day we compound this debt further before him with our very sins. And in our text today, Matthew presents to us someone who takes the burden of our debt upon himself. One who has no personal sin debt so that he is able. And not only able, but he is willing to come along and pay our own our personal debt. The way Matthew lays out this account in Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 8 is just so fascinating. It's full of twists and it's full of turns and, and, and seeming contradictions even in this particular passage. But in the end of it all, we'll see this great reality that the Son of God in human flesh, yes, our Lord Jesus Christ, has the authority and the necessary resources to forgive sins committed against God to anyone who comes to him. And that is the message. That is the theme. Turn to Matthew 9, 1, and we'll begin reading through verse 8. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know, that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. What a fascinating passage. I want us to, to kind of organize our thoughts and, and this entire uh, passage and this study around this main theme. Forgiveness is man's deepest need and Jesus' foremost mission. Okay, so forgiveness is our deepest need and it happens to be Jesus' foremost mission. And, and Matthew here in this text, in these eight verses, he presents to us three scenes that teach a, a greater reality than what's initially perceived on the surface. Okay? Matthew wants his readers to behold three truths. I mean, this language, again, I, I've highlighted this, this little word, behold, as we were going through, remember chapter eight, Matthew's like, behold this, behold this. And, and what Matthew wants us to do is he's almost like uh, putting a spotlight. Like there's a lot going on here with the disciples, with Jesus, with all the people around, with all the um, men and women who need healing. But every time he says, behold, it's almost like, like he zooms in and he says, oh, here's what I want you to pay attention to. Like, look at this right here. Don't miss this. And so this language of beholding or of seeing in verses one through eight is all over the place. Like in, in verse two, and behold, they brought to him a paralytic. If, if you have your NASB, that word behold is missing. And, and, and I'm not sure why, but ESV has that word and certainly the original has. And behold, they brought to him. And, and at the end of verse two, and seeing their faith, it's almost like and beholding their faith. Same exact word that's being used. Verse three, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, and, and, and Jesus knowing their thoughts, exactly the same word that's used here, and he sees, he, he beholding their thoughts, he says to them. And then in verse eight, and when the crowds beheld this, and when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck. So it's almost like Matthew moves his spotlight from one scene to the next, and, and he wants us to perceive and to understand greater reality. Like on the surface, this may seem and, and look this way, but I want you to look deeper and understand bigger picture. And so he wants us to see three truths here. Number one, he wants us to behold the forgiveness in Jesus. Behold the forgiveness in Jesus. Number two, we're, we're gonna behold the unbelief of the scribes the unbelief of the scribes as it is contrasted with the faith of these friends. And finally in verse eight, as he wraps everything up, he says, behold the blindness of the crowds. Three pictures. Let's go back to verse one. We'll pick up with first, behold the forgiveness in Christ. The first thing Matthew does for us is he sets the scene. Uh, soon after their encounter with the demon-possessed men in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus with his disciples, they get back into the boat, and Matthew says they cross over and came to his own city. So obviously, they're on the other side, they're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, so they get into the boat, they cross over the same sea, and they go back to Capernaum, because according to chapter 4, verse 13, this is the city where Jesus settled. That's his own city. He spends a lot of time there. And Matthew or Mark chapter two, verse one, clearly states that Jesus performed this miracle in Capernaum. If you want to 
get a little bit more background to what is going on here in Matthew chapter 9, you can read Mark 2, 1 through 12, or Luke 5, 17 through 26. There are the parallel passages in the synoptic gospel, and they give a lot more details to what is happening. You know this whole, this whole story of four guys trying to go see Jesus, and they can't get into the room. And so what do they do? They climb on the roof, they dig up a hole, and they lower the paralytic through the roof. That, that's this account here. But Matthew doesn't tell us any of these details. Why? Because he's laser-focused on revealing Christ's identity in his work. Those details are secondary. I want you to pay attention to who this man is. And so at this point, Jesus is in the house, and he's preaching the word to a standing room only crowd. There are no chairs like this with extra space. Everyone is standing shoulder to shoulder trying to listen to what Christ is saying. And all kinds of people are listening to him, including the scribes. Verse three, including the scribes. It's fascinating that wherever Christ is, there are always scribes and Pharisees. And they're always trying to figure out who is this man, what's he teaching? And this is the first time we'll see where they object to Christ in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. This is their first opposition. And it will be accelerated more and more and more until they crucify him in Matthew chapter 27. And so he's on this side of the sea now and verse two, and behold, and behold, look here, what Matthew is saying, pay attention to what's about to happen. Some men come to Jesus, they disrupt the meeting, they get close enough to grab his attention. Without making any verbal requests, they bring their friend and they lay him before Jesus. And we are told that this man is on some kind of hard mat. Um, Nasby translates it as as bed, but maybe more like a, a pallet of some sort. And they bring him, and, and the text says that he is lying on, a, on this pallet. It, the term here literally communicates the sense that this man is cast down, like he's thrown on this pallet, and he's immovable. He cannot move at all, totally helpless, paralytic. And Jesus, verse 2, sees their faith and beholding or seeing their faith. This is what Matthew wants to emphasize in this text for his readers, faith and forgiveness, and the opposite reality, unbelief and its peril. This is the point, this is the theme of the entire section, faith and forgiveness. We see again and again that faith is driving people to seek after Jesus. Just like the leper and the centurion in our earlier passage in chapter 8, these men believed that Jesus could, in fact, heal them. Whatever this trip ends up costing them, social ridicule or maybe some material cost associated with breaking down the roof of someone's house, whatever the cost is, they're willing to put up with it. And they step out in faith, hoping that Jesus would be merciful to their friend. And and we see that Jesus, he takes notice of faith. He saw their faith. Jesus beheld, he, he perceives their faith. 
Once again, Matthew here, he, he highlights Jesus' ability to look inside one's heart and see what's going on. To look inside one's mind, the invisible, the immaterial, and, and, and perceive these men have faith. You know, throughout this gospel, we have already seen faith is manifest not by what one knows to be true, but by what one does in response to Jesus. Not just knowing about, but knowing about, you respond. These men clearly saw something in Jesus, in his authoritative words and in his miraculous works that prompted them to, to respond. They trusted that Jesus could heal with a word, so much so that they lay this paralytic before him and they don't utter a single word. And both Mark and Luke in their accounts, they don't record any verbal conversation before between Jesus and them. They don't request. The only one who's talking is Jesus Christ here in this passage. Now, it says Jesus seen their faith, their faith. Whose faith did Jesus see? Their faith. Was it the friend's faith that caused Jesus to forgive and ultimately heal their friend? Or was it, was it also shared by the paralytic himself? Jesus sees their faith. And it's, it's hard to tell from, from this passage. Maybe the paralytic heard of Jesus and, and compelled his friends to put him on this bed, to put him on this pallet and bring him to Jesus because he had to see him because he was looking to be healed. Or maybe it was the other way around that his friends, seeing Jesus, they go up to their friends like, friend, Jesus is back in town. You need to go see him. And so they bring him. We, we simply don't know. It seems to me that everybody is included in this group. The man had to believe that Jesus is able to heal and his friends must do the same in order to bring him to Jesus. But I want you to see in this text as well as others in Matthew that listen church, God often gives grace to people through the faith of others. I find it very fascinating. God often gives grace to people through the faith of others. For instance, we already studied Matthew chapter 8, verse 13, when Jesus interacts with centurion, and at the very end, verse 13 says, and Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. So the emphasis is, you believe that your slave son will be healed. And then look what happens next. And the servant was healed that very moment. So I see your faith, centurion, go. And then someone else gets healed. It's fascinating. Matthew 15, verse 28. Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. So emphasizing her faith, your faith is great. And I'm going to grant the desire of your faith. And look what happens next. And her daughter was healed at once. Church, this is a reminder and also an encouragement for us to do the same as we approach God's throne, praying for one another 
and even those who are outside of God's family. The, the Lord is pleased, it seems, to hear us as we approach him by faith and is delighted to even bless others on our account. That's why we pray for others. That's why we go and we plead and we ask the Lord to be merciful, to be kind, to be gracious to others, just like these friends. And that's why, that's why we need to continue to pray for one another even during this time. And we have been, the Lord's been giving us more opportunities to do that, especially in the last few weeks. And Jesus says, seeing, right? He sees their faith and so he responds. In fact, it's interesting. Jesus is pleased, right? Jesus, like this is what, what Matthew wants you to see. He sees their faith and therefore he's pleased with their faith. And, and friends, this is the only thing that pleases Jesus in this account is faith. Everything else he's gonna confront and he's gonna rebuke. The only thing that pleases Jesus here is totally unable, just cast and thrown down on this mat, is brought to Jesus, and without any words is pleading for mercy. That's what pleases Jesus. That's what pleases him. Remember that at this point, right, in, in just the redemptive history, if we were to take from Genesis to Revelation, um, these men here, the disciples and people who observe Jesus Christ, they, they do not have the full theology, the Christology really that we have today. They don't know everything about this Christ. In fact, the disciples don't know what they will know in just a few short years about this man, Christ Jesus. They simply believe at this point that Jesus could heal. That's the extent of their faith. Desperate, broken men suffering from the effects of the fall. They come and they seek help from Christ. Very similar to the leper, to the centurion in chapter 8. Except this time, this time it's different. For the first time in this gospel, Jesus reveals himself as one who forgives sin. By this time, he had probably healed hundreds of people, if not thousands. But this time is different. He sort of pulls back the curtain and reveals to sinners, to us, our deepest need. It's like, you come seeking for this, for physical healing, and you are right in seeking for physical healing because that's why I'm here. The fact that Jesus is walking around and healing the blind right? He's healing the paralytics. He's casting out demons should tell them and this generation that this man is different. This man is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament who was foretold that when you see things like this happening, know that he is the one. When you see blind receive sight, know that this is the Messiah. When you see paralytics come up and start walking and rejoicing, know this is the Messiah. So rightly, they come and they say, okay, there's something different about you. We are coming to get healed. But this time it's a little different. Jesus forgives the sinner. He says, take courage, son. 
take courage, son. Your sins are, are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, this is a radical development. Instead of an immediate miracle, as Jesus would normally do, right? He instantly healed the leper. He instantly healed the servant. He instantly healed the woman. He instantly stilled the sea and cast out the demons. But here he immediately, instantly forgives sin. These men brought their their friend to receive physical healing just like everybody else before them. But I mean, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine being that guy right on the pallet? You know, if you're full of faith, you know you're just about to walk here any moment, any moment Jesus will tell you, get up and go home. And you're anxiously waiting for that. And Jesus said, son, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, was, was he shocked to receive the unexpected? Disappointed that, that his felt needs weren't met? Relieved, maybe, because of the burden of sin? I don't know, but let's, let's turn the table around and I ask ourselves, what would I rather have, right? Knowing that Jesus is able and willing to forgive my sin, heal my sickness, what would I choose? What would I rather have? Removal of all physical pains and scars or to hear from God our Savior that my sins have been removed. That's why this is radical. Up to this point, he's been healing instantly. Boom, 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 boom. And then all of a sudden, son, you know why I'm here? I'm here to forgive your sin. Your sins are forgiven. We, we don't know whether this man's particular sins, his personal sins resulted in his paralysis, which was a very common understanding in that day, or if he, like every other sinful human being after Adam, was suffering from the effects of sin and needed his sins to be forgiven. Now, I think that is what Matthew is highlighting here. Jesus exposes the man's greatest need, his deepest problem, because your sins will ultimately kill you if they are not dealt with Jesus understands the deeper problem. Think about this. Imagine for a moment being in a car accident and rushed to the ER. After all the scans are done and it's determined that you have internal brain bleeding as well as a broken toe, what do you think a good doctor would treat first? This is what we're talking about here. He's going to determine that your greatest need is your brain, not your toe. He doesn't go for the easy tasks first, you know, as is usually the case for us. We look at our to-do list and we're like, let's just knock out these three because we're going to feel really good about ourselves, getting rid of, you know, three items on our to-do list. It's not what Jesus does. No, you deal with life 
threatening injuries first. And so Jesus, he addresses this man's internal bleeding of the heart, so to speak. Think about what what Matthew had already revealed about this Jesus. What, what, What could they know of this man so far? I mean, do you remember what what the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter one about the identity of this Messiah? He says in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That is the true identity of Jesus. And, And when Jesus begins his ministry, His message addressed the issue of sin where he goes on in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That is why I came to deal with your sin. Therefore, acknowledge your sin. What is the most important work of Christ? What is Was it the countless physical healings during his earthly ministry or the accomplishment of our forgiveness through the cross? You see, already, even though they don't have the full Christology that we have today, already they know why Jesus came. If If you listen, if you look, and if you perceive the greater reality. And if you understand the real desperation within you, the real need of your own heart. He later on will say in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And just a few short chapters after that in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus with his disciples during the last supper, he takes out the cup and he says, this is, my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which was promised earlier by the prophets that whatever you guys have now, whatever you're doing right now, all the sacrifices, all the temple visits, everything that you have right now is ultimately pointing to a greater reality, pointing to a greater person who will come in and who will inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? Why are you pouring out your blood, Jesus? For the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. Okay, here in Matthew 9. He knows where he's going. He's in Galilee, but he's making his way down to Jerusalem. Why? because that's where he needs to die. And already he's indicating in the clearest of terms, our ultimate need, it is not physical, it is spiritual. Sin is the root cause of all the spiritual and physical affliction we experience in this life. And this is what Jesus comes to address. From the earliest part of the Bible to the end, it is clear that man's problem is sin. Isaiah 59 verse two One and two, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And in the New Testament, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, what is sin? What is sin? 
At the heart of sin is rebellion against your maker. At the heart of sin is rebellion against your maker. He created you for his own glory. To love and to serve him. So that he can be your all in all. That's what Adam was told. That's where it all started. And Adam failed to obey. And Adam rebelled. And it continues to this day. So our greatest need is to be forgiven, not simply to be healed physically, because think about this. Think about, um, think about the leper. Think about the centurion's son or, the, or Peter's mother-in-law or even this man here, this paralytic. Listen, everybody who was healed physically by Christ ultimately died. They died. So the question is, what now? What now? Listen, Jesus came to deal with sin. He came to live for us. He came to die instead of us. He came to resurrect for our justification. That is why he could And only he could utter these words. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. I am, he says, accomplishing the forgiveness, the very forgiveness we are speaking of, but I am treating you as if it's already done. Behold, friends, the forgiveness of Christ. This is, in fact, the greatest miracle. It is much more difficult to accomplish this, the forgiveness that we're talking about, than to raise the paralytic as we will soon see. Jesus addresses our deepest needs by forgiving our greatest sins. Take heart. Take heart, he says. Like, take courage. Don't be afraid. Friend, don't be Afraid, because when Jesus forgives you, you're forgiven. Jesus, he he just demonstrated such great power with such deep compassion. You have nothing to fear, friend, because your sins are gone. And you can almost hear this man sitting there in exactly the same physical condition as he was before seeing Jesus. And Jesus says, you're good. You're good. Don't be afraid. Your sins are taken care of. Even if you die as a paralytic, your deepest need is met. This is our greatest problem. It is not student debt, not racism, not bad government, not false teaching, not even our broken and ailing bodies. No, the real problem is sin. But we have a very powerful and merciful Savior who forgives sin with authority. Behold, friends, behold, church, the forgiveness in Jesus. But that's not all the story. There's an end here. Matthew draws our attention away for a brief moment from this paralytic and, and onto the scribes in the same room who are not thrilled about what is taking place at this point. So second, behold the unbelief of the scribes. It says here in verse three, and some of the behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes and Jesus knowing their thoughts said. 
this one blasphemes, they say. Why, why do they come to this conclusion? Well, listen, in their minds, Jesus has no authority to utter such a statement. Forgiveness of sins? I mean, Jewish religion at this time had no room for a personal declaration of forgiveness, especially by a mere man. Nobody talks like that. You mean to tell me that another fellow who just showed up in the room can, can forgive a paralytic? Who does he think he is? In fact, Matthew and Luke, they bring out this, the rest of their, their saying, right? Their, their thinking in their hearts. It says, how or only God can forgive sin? Who does he think he is? And that is absolute right, right? The, the, the Old Testament, it confirms this truth for us everywhere. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities. Who forgives iniquities? The Lord, the Lord God and no one else. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. It's the prerogative of the Lord. Who are you? to tell him that his sins are forgiven. In addition, remember that they're schooled in the law of Moses, so they know that sin can only be forgiven by bringing a sacrifice to the temple. Yet in this case, we see no sacrifices. We see no temple. They're in a rundown house right now. We see no priest. And they're thinking, for this man, for this man, this fellow, it's a term of contempt. Like, like Matthew wants you to see that they don't like this fellow. They don't like this man. Who is this man? For this man to claim that he has authority to forgive sin is nothing short of blasphemy. You know what blasphemy is? It's, it's to slander God. It's the same accusation that will ultimately get Jesus hung on the cross in Matthew 26. But there might be another theological issue here at stake. Matthew Green or Michael Green, he he says this, there was a deeply rooted conviction in Judaism that all suffering was a result of personal sin, as I mentioned before, and that nobody can be cured until he or she was forgiven. For instance, one rabbi said, no sick person is cured for sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. Rabbi, another rabbi, Alexander, he agreed and he said, the sick does not arise from his sickness until his sins are forgiven. And they're thinking, like many in our charismatic movement today, that any sickness is the direct result of personal sin. So if Jesus really forgave and cured this man's deepest sin, deepest need, right? Will he not also heal him? Seems like the show is over. And Jesus, he's perceiving their reasoning. He knows what's inside of their hearts. Notice that Jesus is not hearing them. They're not talking out loud with one another. Hey, bro, what do you think about this? I think he's blaspheming. What do you think? They're, they're reasoning within. They're talking to themselves in their own hearts, right? Jesus knowing, verse four, their thoughts. He sees inside of you. Friends, this is who our Lord is. He, even while on earth in human flesh, he can open up your heart and he could see right everything that's going on there. Jesus knows your thoughts. We can't hide from Jesus. 
He sees your heart, whether you have faith or not. And, and seeing what he is seeing, he rebukes them. Why are you thinking evil? He says, why are you thinking evil in your heart? What was the manifestation of this evil? It's the unbelief, not recognizing the son and honoring him as God. They rightly conclude that God alone can forgive sin. Absolutely right. But they fail to realize that this Jesus is God. This is the one. What you read in the Old Testament points to this one. This is the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. They assume that he is a mere man. And so they charge him with guilt. And listen, they charge Jesus with blasphemy, but in turn, they are the ones who are slandering God. Isn't that ironic? Then a question. Verse 5. Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? To say, I forgive your sins or to raise a paralytic? You know, on the service, one would conclude that it's probably easier to forgive sin. Why? Because... You can't verify it. It is not a physical manifestation. If I go up like the Catholic priest and sit down and after a confession I say, son, your sins are forgiven. How, how do I know his sins are? How do you know what I told you is true? There's no way to verify it. And so on the surface, it seems like it's easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. To heal a paralytic is a lot harder, right? Because the paralytic has to get up. Bro, get up. And you have to have power to effect that word, that change. You can't be doing what the spiritual charlatans do today on TV and even around us, playing with people as if they're truly healing them. But what's the greater reality that Jesus is pointing to? Listen, the scribes don't believe that Jesus forgave his sin and that much is sure. Why? Because the man is still on the mat. He's still laying there. So Jesus says, so you don't believe? Okay. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up. It's all, almost like mid-sentence. He doesn't even finish his sentence. He stops halfway. He focuses now away from the scribes onto the paralytic. And he says, they don't believe. Get up. Get up. And he gets up. And he goes home. What's the point? I think what Jesus is trying to tell you that it's a lot easier to actually heal a paralytic than to forgive sin. From his standpoint, it's a lot easier to heal physically than to forgive sin. Why? Because... The only way Jesus could forgive sin is if he provides a substitute who could suffer the penalty of men's sin. That's why you don't go around and forgive other people's debt unless you provide a checkbook with it. Unless you sign that check. You don't give this to your creditor, your sins are forgiven. Then it makes sense. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why? Because little do they know that in just short while, Jesus would become that substitute, taking upon himself the full fury of God's wrath against all who would come to believe in him. Remember in Matthew 26, 
He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. At this point, he already forgave this man his sins. And here he is, anticipating the full cup of God's wrath against this paralytic sin and everybody who will after him come to trust and everybody who went before Jesus come to trust in Christ. Which is easier? Friend, which is easier? I mean, both are impossible for us. But Jesus says, you don't have a clue what it's gonna take for me to endure the suffering of the cross so that today I could say, don't fear, son. Your sins are forgiven. But so that you know that I have that power, here's the proof. Both the ability to grant forgiveness and to heal the paralytic, they pointed to someone special who's been predicted in the Old Testament, the son of man, the son who was previously with the father from all eternity, took on a human body to live among sinners and to forgive. I want you to pay attention to this, just a little word on earth, right? This little phrase, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth. Man, this is key, on earth. Like, I have authority, right? Just as much as I had before I was on earth. But I came here in flesh to forgive sin. Speaks to his preexistence. I have just as much authority here on earth to forgive sin as when I was with the Father. Church Christ's foremost mission is to secure and to grant forgiveness. This is the greatest miracle. All of the physical healings, they point to this truth. Yet, sinners, they don't see their greater need. They don't see this greater reality. In our sin, we fail to see our need for forgiveness as well as the solution that is offered in Jesus Christ. Unbelief. And Jesus comes to expose it. And how does he expose it? As evil. As evil. Forgiveness is our deepest need and Jesus' foremost mission. Do you know that? I mean, do you see the great reality of both your sin and your Savior? You would think that after such a demonstration, everyone will believe in Christ. However, that's, that's usually never the case. Look, finally, quickly, behold the blindness of the crowds. After the paralytic is wrapped up, he's going, probably rejoicing, still wondering at the effect of everything that took place. What does that mean? Man, our sins are forgiven, but here I am walking after everything. Matthew concludes this account by reflecting on the crowds in verse 8. And as the story goes, they also missed the point. It's not so obvious from the text because the text says in verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God. They glorified God. Douglas O'Donnell, he says, this sounds positive until, or positive enough until we realize that this glorification of God is somewhat superficial. This seemingly positive declaration contains everything except the one thing that is necessary, the one thing Jesus is looking for, and that is faith. Their response lacked faith in Jesus as 
the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who, to whom we now go to receive forgiveness of sin. Seeing the crowds here do not perceive. That's the point in verse eight. Like, and when the crowd saw this, that there's a play on word, they didn't see anything. They didn't get the greater reality. And, and the conclusion, their conclusion is, look, men are able to forgive sins. That's what their conclusion is at the end. Men are able to forgive sins. God has given such authority to men. Jesus says, no, absolutely not. I am the son of man who came down from heaven to forgive sinners on earth. Not any other men, me and me alone, he says. They completely miss the point. They're amazed at Jesus, but they only give lip service to Jesus. They are filled with awe, but faith is absolutely missing. You know, it's sobering about this crowd in Capernaum. They spent, this, this group of people here, this crowd, they spent the most time with Jesus during his earthly ministry. That was his hometown. People knew of him. And yet, in just a few short chapters, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus will turn around and say to his hometown folks, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than you. That's, that's astonishing. They heard his words, saw his miracles. They were even awestruck. But friends, as, as Jesus illustrated before and as he's illustrating now, mere Amazement is not enough. So are you seeing Jesus today for who he is? How would you personally answer the questions his disciples posed in 827? Who then is this man? Do you see the forgiveness and, and healing that it's bound up in only one man? The man Christ Jesus in his compassionate and willing heart to forgive our sin. Forgiveness is man's deepest need and Jesus's foremost mission. I love what Spurgeon said. He says, until God can change or lie, he never will bring to mind again the sin of that man whom he has pardoned. God's nature, his very being, his very essence is at stake here. If he said something to be true, friend, take that to the bank. Because he doesn't change. In Christ, the sin that separated you from God is now separated from you as far as the east is from the west, we read in Psalm 103. Does Jesus cure us physically? Yes. We are not to be afraid of asking and praying Jesus to heal us physically. He took all of our pains, all of our sorrows, all of our sicknesses upon himself. Absolutely he did. And so it is not arrogant to come to Jesus and to plead and to ask that Jesus would heal those who are suffering physically. Does he care? Does he heal? Yes. Does Jesus promise complete physical restoration? Yes, he does. But it might not come in this life. It might be for some, but, but 
maybe not for others. Why not? Why not? Well, just like he said in John 9, 4, he says, so that the works of God might be displayed in us. That's why. That's why it may not be his will to heal you permanently here now, but friends, friends, we all have assurance of the resurrection because Jesus forgives sin and he resurrected from the dead. We are promised that we too will be resurrected from the dead. Many died crippled. Many die from cancer. Many die from all kinds of effects and consequences of sin and are never restored in this life. But oh, do they have hope of being restored in the next. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because of our forgiveness. Because it is the deepest need and Christ's foremost mission which he came to accomplish. One final quote to get you thinking as we sing and as we go from this place. Spurgeon said, God is more ready to forgive than you are ready to offend. So run to Jesus, such as his love, friend. Worship Jesus this morning as a forgiven saint and boldly and unabashedly proclaim his forgiveness to others. And if you're not forgiven, run to him because he stands ready to forgive. Why? Because he secured your forgiveness on the cross. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can boldly proclaim and that we can believe in what was accomplished for us on the cross stands true today and it will be forever true. It will be forever for all eternity. We will be in heaven because of Christ's death always and we will always remember that. We thank you for his willingness to forgive our sin. Help us to believe. Prevent those who are walking in unbelief and are still to this day rejecting your word, the word of forgiveness, the word of reconciliation, cause them to see the greater reality. And we will forever worship and praise you. Amen.